it's usually in the fall when it's much cooler than it's going to be today, and it's usually in the middle of uh, junior high that teachers introduce their students to Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, do you remember reading uh, stories, those macabre stories from the dark mind of Edgar Allan Poe? Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, of course, wrote what um, is often labeled as the very first detective story. He wrote the poem that gave Baltimore its football team name, uh, and he wrote a lot of frightening stories. He wrote about a man who was walled in, uh, bricked into a wall while he was still alive. He wrote about a prisoner who was strapped to a table and there was a swinging blade over his head that kept getting lower and lower and lower. Do you remember his story, The Telltale Heart? Uh, here's how it starts. Uh, the narrator is a murderer. He's accused of being uh, not only a homicide but of madness too. Here's how Poe starts the story. True! Nervous, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I'm mad? The disease had sharpened my, sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all else was the sense of hearing, acute. I heard all things in heaven and on earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Listen. And observe how healthily and calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how, the first, how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He'd never wronged me. He'd never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of that eye forever. And so he did. The, the man, the old man with the vulture eye, the narrator, took his life. He killed him. He smothered him by pushing a bed on top of him. And then he very calmly took the body and, just like you would, cut it into pieces, uh, lifted the floorboards and put the body inside, cleaned everything up, and there were no signs at all in his house of a crime. But then the police showed up. See, the policeman came in the middle of that black night because a neighbor had heard the old man screaming, so they called the police. And while the police were interrogating him, he was distracted by the sound. Thum, thum. Thum, thum. Thum, thum. That sound. He knew the man was dead. He'd cut his body apart himself. But he was just as certain of what he heard under those floorboards. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. It was his heart beating louder and louder. And he couldn't understand why he was sitting there, why the police, how they couldn't hear it, or how, how they, 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 they didn't respond. He actually thought they were mocking him. They were making fun of him. They knew it. He knew what was going on. They could hear it. He could hear it. And, and they didn't say anything. He must, they must be mocking him. They must be making fun of him. Finally, he, he couldn't stand it anymore. And, and this is Poe, how he ends the story. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it's the beating of his hideous heart. Now, every English teacher knows what to do with that story. Read it when it's really dark outside. I know that. That's what you're supposed to do. But the murderer didn't really hear the man's heart beating. But it was his own conscience that was pounding away at him, reminding of his crime, him of his crime, indicting him. Every thump thump was this reminder of his terrible crime. You can try to escape it, but it's part of who you are. It's an integral part of the person that God made you. You have a conscience, and your conscience thumps you regularly. Uh, we're devoting these days to figuring out together what the Bible says about your conscience. It's not our normal practice. Normally, of course, we move systematically through books of the Bible. But for the rest of the spring and the summer, we're going to talk about your conscience. 
Two weeks ago, when I started, I tried to explain what your conscience is. Your conscience is a moral capacity. Every human being has one. It's part of being a moral creature made in God's image. And it's a capacity that every human being has. It can be developed or it can be underdeveloped, but we all have one. Your conscience is that internal witness that reminds you of what you believe about right and wrong. And it tells you whether you're living up to your standards of what you believe about right and wrong. Sometimes your conscience accuses you. Sometimes it vindicates you. But it takes your beliefs about right and wrong and it testifies to you. (coughs) Excuse me. It witnesses to you about whether or not you're living according to your own beliefs. Uh, Bob Kobe sent me this paragraph from Oswald Chambers about the conscience. Here's how Chambers defined it. Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know and then continually reminds me of what that standard demands that I do. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either toward God or toward what we regard as the highest standard. This explains why conscience is different in different people. If I am in the habit of continually holding God's standard in front of me, my conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. Your conscience differs from other people because you have different understandings of right and wrong. The only one with the right to control your conscience is God himself. He alone is Lord of your conscience. Now, you may be for a time under someone else's authority as a child in their home or as a student at a college or school or as an employee. You may be living under someone else's rules and you should heed them, but your conscience is under God alone. And your conscience is a good gift from God. He gave it to you to protect you, to keep you from incurring his further judgment. We are all accountable to him, and your conscience serves as a warning to keep you from falling further and further into his judgment. Carl Sisler said that your conscience is like a smoke alarm. When my smoke detector goes off in my house, um, I know something is wrong. There's, there's danger somewhere. That or what I'm cooking is finished. That's the other thing that sometimes my smoke detector tells me. But, but your smoke detector is there to tell you there's something wrong. Go figure it out. Investigate. And your conscience uh, alarms. It, it, it blares at you. Today what we're going to do is we're going to talk specifically about how your conscience can be broken. Um, sin affects your conscience. It, it shapes it, it warps it, it damages. Conscience is still a good gift from God, and it's still useful in pointing us to God's standards, but your conscience is not perfect. In fact, your conscience is in worse shape than you think it is. And I want to trace with you in the Bible, uh, we're going to look at four different passages, and I want to look at four different ways that your conscience can be broken. Uh, from these four different passages. Now they overlap a little bit, but my hope is to bring out the different ways that they show you how your conscience can be broken. I want you to see, see this so that you realize how dependent we are on God for shaping our conscience. What you'll find, I think, as we go through this is that there are some places in your conscience and some place, people, uh, places in the conscience of other people that it is severely broken and healthy, and then yours might be broken in another way and healthy in another way, uh, but, but, but sin is, has this warping effect on our consciences. We're going to start by uh, turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. So I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is toward the end of the Bible. We're actually going to move in the New Testament from, we're going to start towards the back and move forward. Uh, But uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is where I want to direct your attention. And we're going to talk, first of all, about this description of your conscience. The Bible here says your conscience is guilty. We're going to talk about a guilty conscience or an evil conscience. We're going to talk about what it means to have a guilty or an evil conscience. Now, my translation, the uh, NIV, uses the term guilty. Um, We use the phrase guilty conscience in our culture to talk about shame. I think the ESV translation is better here when it uses the word evil. It helps us, I think, be a little clearer about what the author is writing here. So I like the term evil conscience a little better than guilty conscience, but uh, we'll take the words as they come. So let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, he says, brothers and sisters, 
since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. There it is, an evil conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now this is one of the most important paragraphs in the whole book of Hebrews, uh, the author's trying to bring together a lot of what he says and apply it to his readers. I wonder if you saw all the commands, all of the repeated commands. Let us, it says, let us draw near, let us consider, let us hold swervingly. Let us, over and over again, he says this. One of my professors identified this as the salad paragraph in the Bible because of all the lettuce. That's not even that funny, but you'll remember it. So, Good. Based on everything I've written, the author is saying, here's what I want you to do. And the first command is, verse 22, let us draw near to God. Now, the images that he uses here, he borrows a lot from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses, from the system of rules and commands for following God faithfully that God gave through Moses to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And the command to draw near would have sounded very strange in their ears. Because as Moses described it, it was dangerous to draw near. In fact, it was forbidden to draw near to God. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God has leading them to a new land. He had moved in with them. In fact, they had built a tent for him. God's tent, you could be living in the tents of Israel, and God's tent could be three tents down. That could be his house, but you would not draw near. You just don't drop in on God's house. It's God's house. Be careful with God's house. Because God is holy and human beings are not holy. For your own safety, you can't just drop in on God. Have you ever been inside the White House? Uh, I've been inside the White House a couple of times, once in the 1980s and once in the 2000s. They were very different experiences. Uh, if you want to enter the White House in the post-9-11 era, you have to contact your congressman or senator. You have to make an appointment. You have to fill out paperwork in advance. You have to pass a background check. And on the appointed day and at the appointed time, you bring your ID to the right gate, go through security. Don't bring a backpack. Don't bring a purse. You can take it in with you. And you can walk into some of the rooms that are open to the public. There was security in the 1980s that wasn't quite that tight. In fact, if you visited the White, uh, the White House about 150 years ago in the 1880s or before then, there was not really much security at all. Uh, in fact, for the first 150 years of our country at least, the White House was the people's house. Uh, we didn't have an aristocracy. They, the president is not a king. And it's your right as a citizen to approach the president, to ask him whatever you want, to talk to him about uh, your troubles. He's not a king. We don't have aristocrats. We're, we're all uh, citizens. We have equal access. The president is a citizen just like the rest of us. That's the way it was. But <laughs> after several assassinations, the powers that be decided to tighten up the security. So we're all citizens. We all have equal access. But some of our fellow citizens are unstable. And we prefer our presidents to be as alive as possible. So we made it harder and harder to get access. Why? It's for the president's safety. It's not for your safety. You can't just barge in, but it's for the president's safety. You can't just barge into God's house either, but it's not about his safety. It's your safety that is the question. Because God's holiness is consuming. He's holy and you are not He's clean, he's pure, he's good, he's upright, but you're not. This text writes about the fact that we have guilty consciences and impure bodies. So then how can the author of Hebrews say, come near, 
Come near, draw near. The only person in the system that Moses gave us or that God gave us through Moses, the only person who could draw near to God uh, was the high priest and he could, only go ne- draw, he could only go to God once a year before he could pass through that final curtain that separated God from the people, he had to be washed, he had to be sprinkled, he had to be dressed, he had to be set apart, he had to bring sacrifices of bulls and goats uh, to cover himself. The animals die instead of the high priest, so here I come with blood. Somebody has died for my, something has died for my unholiness. That's the only way he can draw near to God. He's got to be as ritually pure and clean as possible. And all of those requirements are there that the author of Hebrews is writing about here, or hinting at, alluding to. All those requirements are there to teach the people to ingrain in them this certainty that God is holy and we are not. It's dangerous if God moves in your neighborhood. You don't just barge in in his house. This paragraph here is about a new way, a new way to draw near to God. It's the way prepared for us by the Lord Jesus. He didn't make this new way through offering animal sacrifices. He offered his own blood. He himself is our substitute. We draw near in his name. He is both the sacrifice and the high priest who intercedes for us. Drawing near in Jesus' name is one of the ways that you could describe faith. He writes about this, about our faith, the full assurance that faith brings. We, we come to God on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He lived the life we ought to live. He died the death we deserve to die. And we come in his name. The right of access is only through him. It's good to be able to gain access in someone else's name. I wonder if you saw the story this week about the man... Uh, in South Africa who was arrested for eating at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, it may be a crime to eat at Kentucky Fried Chicken, but this was this man's particular crime. So this man in South Africa had been, for the last 12 months, he has been going around to Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in South Africa, telling them that he was a representative of corporate headquarters there to do quality control checks. So he's been walking into KFC and saying, I'm from corporate and I'm here to make sure your chicken tastes good. Why don't you bring me some? And they did for a year, free, free. This is the best crime ever, isn't it? Over and over and over again. Uh, It's good to be able to go somewhere in the name of corporate. You mentioned you're from corporate, the door's open. We draw near in the name of Jesus. We're coming in his name. And the moment that we first turn and believe in him, God changes us. That's, that's what this is described in verse 22. We draw near to God and we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the change that takes place when we first turn to him by faith. And particularly we need to be cleansed He says, from a guilty conscience, an evil conscience. Now, in this passage, you should recognize that the author of Hebrews uses the word conscience as kind of a substitute for all of you that is immaterial. So there's your body, and then there's the immaterial part of you, your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit, the part of you that's not flesh, that immaterial part of you. The author of Hebrews is using the term consciences as a summary of all of that part of you. But in particular, he's saying something about your conscience. Your conscience is evil. An evil conscience does not draw near to God. It doesn't correct us aright so that we approach God. It sends us away from God. Your conscience, if it was healthy and whole, would convict you of right and wrong. It still probably does that. still probably works well enough so that you at least get the message that you have broken God's rules. You don't measure up to God's rules. Your conscience, even, even a broken one, works well enough to tell you that. But the problem is worse. Your conscience is evil. And by that, I think the author of Hebrews is telling us that our consciences are so broken that you don't even agree with God about what good and evil are, how to define good and evil, 
So we have broken God's rules, but we're not even on the same page about whether or not God's rules are good rules that we should follow. That's what an evil conscience is. We're worse off than we think. See, the Bible indicts us for breaking God's commands, and it indicts us for not agreeing with what those commands should be. It's how unholy we are. So in verses 24 and 25, he says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Your conscience tells you whether you live up to the standards. Your conscience tells you whether you are encouraging people toward love and good deeds and whether you are faithfully attending worship. An evil conscience will tell you that it doesn't matter if you do these things. See the difference? I'll give you an example of how this works. This also comes uh, from the news. PBS announced this week uh, of a change that's going to take place in the cartoon for children about Arthur the Aardvark. Did you grow up with Arthur? Uh, Arthur's whole series of books for children by Mark Brown. We loved to read the Arthur books. Uh, we got as many of Arthur books as we possibly could from the library when our kids were little. We never watched the television show. The television show has been on for 23 years. We didn't watch the television show because Arthur's little sister, D.W., is too sassy. And when you have little girls, it's not good to introduce a sassy person into their life. They don't need help. So we never watched the television show, but we used to read a lot of the books. So um, this is what's going to happen this uh, fall uh, for the 23rd season of the Arthur television show. Arthur's teacher, Mr. Ratburn, is getting married Mr. Ratburn is marrying Patrick, a chocolatier. Uh, So Mr. Ratburn is uh, homosexual. Uh, PBS is saying, we we just reflect the culture. We don't influence the culture. That's what they're saying. Uh, And uh, this is our reflection of the culture we want, our television show to reflect uh, the way American society is, okay? That would be, I would understand that more if they also had not tried to introduce a homosexual character uh, several years ago and the backlash was so bad that they washed that out. Are you reflecting culture or are you shaping culture? Now, here is something that you should understand and recognize that is true about your children and about your grandchildren, they are inclined because of the way, the culture in which we live, they don't think there's anything unusual or wrong about Mr. Ratburn marrying Patrick. They're not inclined to be shocked by that. They're not inclined to think that it's unusual. Uh, This is just the way it is. They they will talk about their friends uh, as if this is completely normal, completely shocking, not surprising at all. Oh, he's gay, she's gay, he's transgender, she's transgender. Will not surprise them, shock them, trouble them, bother them at all because that's just the way it is. Reminds me of a, a missionary that I met several years ago, 20 years or so ago. He and his wife and his kids were serving in a far northern village. It's in the country of Kenya to a people uh, way up and isolated in Kenya. They were the Dasanuch people. And and he was talking about how he had been uh, sharing the gospel with them and many of them had become followers of Jesus and he was doing Bible studies with these tribes. And when it came to describing what the Bible says about homosexuality, he would uh, meet late at night with only the men, he would gather them around and he would explain what the Bible text says about homosexuality and he would do it with only the men under those circumstances because they were so shocked and horrified at what the Bible was describing that they almost found it unbelievable. You think of the difference in those cultures between that culture and our culture. We should be honest, whenever we talk about sexuality of any kind, that we live in a sexually broken world and we are sexually broken people, all of us. God has a good plan for human sexuality. His good plan is that a man and a woman would marry together and and live a lifelong monogamous relationship where they find and experience all the beauties and all the joys of sexual intimacy that God gave us. And we recognize that every single one of us falls short of that standard. We fall short of it in our desires. We fall short of it in our actions. We, we don't love it the way we should. We don't express it the way we should. All of us fall short of that standard. And we try to help each other and, and encourage each other in pursuing God's good standard. But 
Notice here this conscience problem. Don't even agree with God about what's right and what's wrong. It's an evil conscience. And so this passage reminds us of how much we need to be forgiven. And it tells us how much we need God himself through his word to shape our consciences. Here's how broken your conscience is. It still works, but it doesn't think about right and wrong the way God thinks about right and wrong. And so we come to the scriptures for help. We ask God to shape our consciences. I hope that one of my hopes is as, as we study this uh, material through the Bible and we think about what the Bible says about conscience, I hope that God uses the study itself to help shape our consciences. So in Romans chapter 14, Paul told the Romans that they should be fully convinced in their own minds about what they believe. Get convictions. Get convictions about these matters. How do we get these convictions from the scriptures? And from talking about it with one another. Why do you believe that? Why do you practice that? Why do you, do you make those choices? Why do you live like that? Help me understand. Help me, show me from the Bible why you do what you do so that I can understand and that, that I can develop my conscience either. Two, um, we need to help one another because the conscience can be evil. Now we're going to pick up the pace a little bit and we're going to go to the book of Titus. And we're going to talk about the second way that a conscience can be broken. We're going to talk now about a corrupted conscience. A corrupted conscience. Turn from Hebrews back just one book. Well, skip over Philemon. It's only one page. And then come to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to talk about a corrupted conscience. So we move from an evil conscience to a corrupted conscience. So from Hebrews back just a page or two to Titus chapter 1. And I want to start reading from Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Titus 1, verse 10. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets... Uh, writers, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, here we go, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now Paul here is concerned about false teachers. He started in chapter 1 talking about elders. I want you to appoint elders, he says to Titus, because the elders need to protect the church from false teachers. And these false teachers have a particular emphasis. Verse 14, they relish Jewish myths and mere human commands. Those two things. Um, if we're going to talk about what it means to obey God, um, to please God, they seem to be adding to the rules. They're, they're uh, demanding that their listeners submit to commands that are, he uses the term Jewish myths, loosely tied to the Old Testament and go further than the Bible does. Some things are off limits, these false teachers are saying. If you want to be a real Christian, you can't eat certain foods, you can't do certain things. If you want to follow God faithfully, you want to be a true Christian, you have to follow these rules that I have. They're merely human commands. Now in contrast to that, verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. What does that mean? What he's saying is, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been washed clean, Hebrews 10, if by faith you have turned to Jesus and been washed clean, then you receive from God all of God's gifts. There's nothing that God has created that you can't receive. Everything God made is made to be received and celebrated. There's nothing on the do not touch list to the pure because we recognize, we're going to look at another passage that says something similar, we recognize God's good gifts and we receive them. But 
If you're corrupted, that is, if you don't believe, it says, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, uh, nothing is pure. No matter what you avoid, it won't help you. Your mind and conscience are corrupt. Now, uh, follow me here. What does he mean when he says your conscience is corrupt? Certainly he means that their conscience is not telling them the truth about what is right and wrong. That's true. But they go beyond that. They go beyond that in that this is corrupted conscience won't acknowledge or won't uh, uh, accept the good news of reconciliation to God itself. They're, they've rejected the gospel. That's what a corrupt conscience does. Here's how I want to explain this. Again, remember, how is it that sinful people are reconciled to God? How is it that we're reconciled to God? We're reconciled to God by faith in the Lord Jesus. Like we learn in the book of Hebrews, Jesus has opened a new way for us through his own death on the cross for us so that we can be accepted by faith. And that faith is distinct from our own behavior. It's not dependent on our own works. But here's a group of false teachers who are saying that you have to follow their rules to be reconciled to God. They're preaching a different gospel. If they're using Jewish purity laws, they say things like, no pork, no bacon, get circumcised. You have to do all those things. You have to avoid those things. You have to avoid these things. That's how you get right with God, by following these rules. And Paul said people who teach things like that are false teachers. They're not pure. They have corrupt consciences. So remember, God gave you a conscience to remind you of what is right and wrong. But your conscience is not a reliable guide because of, of sin. It can be evil. It doesn't always agree with God's standards. That's Hebrews 10 teaches us that. But it also can be corrupted. It, it can keep you from believing that salvation is a gift from God received by faith, by grace through faith. A corrupted conscience adds, adds to faith. Now you understand some of the troubles that we have when we try to talk to people about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and trusting him and why that's hard sometimes. Several years ago, many, many years ago, in fact, um, we were uh, together at my in-law's house for a family dinner. It was the end of the summer, and Kathy and I were going to head back to college. I'm not even sure that we were, uh, well, if it was heading back to college, we weren't married yet, but there we were. And uh, before we were going to go back, my in-laws decided to host us for a, a family gathering. So my parents were there, and Kathy's grandmother were there, was there. And on the other side of her, her family, her aunt and uncle was there and her cousins. Um, Kathy's aunt and uncle and cousins were faithful Anglicans in Canada. Kathy's grandmother, other side of the family, didn't attend church at all. And for some reason, we were talking about, we had, uh, Kathy and I had just been uh, at a Christian music festival, and one of the things that happened at the Christian Music Festival is that they served communion. They had this big worship service, and then they passed out the elements of communion. And we were talking about whether or not that was a wise thing to do. I don't know why we were talking about that, but we were talking about that. Should they have served communion at this big Christian Music Festival? Now, just as an aside, no. But we'll talk about that some other time. We'll talk about that some other time. All right? So... Uh, they, uh, somebody said they serve communion. How do they know that all those people there were Christians? Good question. Kathy's grandmother said, it doesn't matter. My mother told me that all good people go to heaven and I believe her. You have to be a good person. That's how you go to heaven because heaven is for good people. It's not what the Bible teaches. There's no one who's good enough to go to heaven. Now, my father-in-law, my wife, my mother-in-law had told her grandmother about this repeatedly over the years, that heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for believing people. Let's believe. But she refused to acknowledge that. It's a corrupted conscience. It's a corrupted conscience that will not accept the good news. This is one of the reasons why we tell people over and over again about the free gift of salvation and they don't believe it. Your faith is a, is a work itself. Your faith is a result of God's kindness. God broke through your corrupt conscience. He opened your eyes to see the wonder of his son and so you turned and believed. That's how you became a Christian because God broke through your corrupt conscience. 
Now, some of these false teachers, or at least their beliefs, played a role in what Paul describes thirdly as a seared conscience. Now, we're going to talk about a seared conscience. Turn back with me again to the left in your Bible, past 2 Timothy to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, we've talked about a, an evil conscience. Now, then we talked about a corrupted conscience. Now we're going to talk about a seared conscience. A seared conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read the paragraph again. The Spirit clearly says that in later, 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 later times, probably if this is King James, I bet it says latter, but we'll go with later. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. There we are again with the food issue. Which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. To the pure all things are pure. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Again, the similarities between this passage and Titus 1. False teachers demanding that people abstain from certain foods, food they believe will desecrate you, demanding that you abstain from marriage because they believe that sex will defile you. But notice what Paul says about them. They're hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. What is a seared conscience? A seared conscience is a conscience that has been ignored for so long that has become insensitive. These false teachers have been lying for so long, uh, lying so much that they don't feel any sort of remorse or shame at all about it anymore or guilt. This is the danger in ignoring your conscience. It will become a seared conscience. Years ago, I heard a preacher describe how uh, one particular tribe of Native Americans used to talk about the conscience. I don't know if that's true, if, there's any sort of, if there actually is a tribe that believes this, but the illustration works, so I'm going to say it. Um, th- this tribe, apparently, uh, believed that your conscience was like a triangle in the middle of your heart. And whenever you did something that you knew was wrong, that triangle would start to move. It would spin. And those corners would poke at your heart as it would spin in your heart. And if you ignored it and kept ignoring it, it would spin more, spin more, spin more. And when those corners would hit your heart, they would prod you, they'd pinch you, but also the friction would start to wear away at those corners. So as that spinning triangle spins in your heart, it starts with a very sharp poke, sharp digging then they would start to file down so that you just have a smooth bump and then the sensation vanishes completely, a seared conscience. Not a bad image. Uh, This week I started reading a collection of essays by an American historian by the name of Stephen Ambrose. He died a few years ago. Uh, The collection's called To America, Personal Reflections of a Historian. So it was published in 2002. The first essay in it was about the founding fathers. In particular, he wrote about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, What do we do? He was wrestling with this in his essay. What do we do about the fact that Thomas Jefferson wrote such majestic words about liberty and equality, and yet he still owned slaves? What do we do about that? He wrote, all men are created equal, and yet he owned some of them. So how can, what do we do with that contradiction? We're still dealing with that, right? Trying to figure that out. This book is uh, 20 years old. I don't think from reading it that Stephen Ambrose would have much patience with people who want to erase Jefferson from history. I don't think he'd have patience with them. But how do we handle that contradiction? A few times in the essay, Stephen Ambrose writes, he had to know, He had to know that what he was doing with his slaves was wrong. He had to know that. Unless this is a place where Thomas Jefferson had a seared conscience. It's not an excuse, but at least we understand. I think the signs of a seared conscience are most evident today in our cultural discussions about abortion. 
Abortion has been in the news a little bit. Did you notice? (laughs) So President Trump, of course, has appointed Supreme Court justices who may overturn uh, Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that allowed abortion. I hope it happens. I pray it happens. Uh, in, In anticipation of that possibility, of course, several states around the country have been responding in different ways. Uh, My home state, the great state of New York, decided to respond by passing its own law, making abortion legal practically up to the point of birth. And when they made that decision, the vote passed. People cheered. Yes, they cheered this. Horrible decision. Now, several other states have been passing restrictions on abortion. Um, in, in an effort to challenge Roe v. Wade. Of course, Alabama, the state that did it this week. Now, have you listened to the arguments online or on television that these laws have prompted? Um, one abortion advocate said on television, a fetus is not a baby, it's not even a human being. Some people advocate what seems to be uh, infanticide. Now, I know that when you're pushed in your position, you're tempted to say outrageous things, and it's not fair to pick the most outrageous thing that is said on the other side and use it as if it's emblematic of everybody. That's not fair. But do they really believe what they're saying? Seared consciences. Seared consciences. It's just a clump of cells. It's just a bit of tissue. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans 1.32. He's writing about how terrible humanity is. We're envious, we're hostile, we're deceitful, we're hateful, we're insolent, we're angry, we're boastful. And then he says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continually do, continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They stand and applaud. It's a seared conscience. Now, there's one more type of broken conscience for us to consider this morning. It's radically different than all the others. So there's an evil conscience, there's a corrupted conscience, there's a seared conscience. They, st- they belong to people who are alienated from God. False teachers who deny what he said about right and wrong or refuse his forgiving grace or who are so appear- opposed to him they cheer what's rotten. Now we're going to look at a, a fourth type of conscience, a weak conscience and it belongs to genuine believers genuine believers paul's addressing when he talks about having a weak conscience turn back with me a couple more books to first corinthians chapter 8 so we're going to turn left again in your bibles and i want you to go back to first corinthians 8 verses 4 through 8 and we're going to talk about having a weak conscience the other three are emblematic a corrupted a a seared and evil conscience emblematic of unbelievers here is something that is prevalent and prominent in the, in the church of Jesus Christ among genuine followers of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about a weak conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Uh, Paul writes this. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Apparently they would asked him some questions. Paul, what, what do we do about food sacrificed to idols? Here is his answer. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat, sacrificial food they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god and since their conscience is weak it's defiled but food does not bring us near to god we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do so now we're talking about food again but not from false teachers these are genuine believers they have weak consciences in the sense that their consciences are particularly sensitive They have a long list of rules about food or drink or days that they believe that you have to follow in order to please God. For them, eating certain foods is a sin. They they don't believe that keeping the rules makes you a Christian, but keeping them, they believe, is what God demands of his people now. Now, we're going to spend several weeks thinking about this. In, In fact, 
Lord willing, two weeks from today, I believe, I'm going to spend the whole morning, we're going to talk about the difference between a weak conscience and a strong conscience. That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to walk slowly through Romans chapter 14 that talks about these two types of consciences. Um, So I'm not going to go into great detail, but um, Paul's understanding of a weak believer and a strong believer are the opposite of what you might expect. See, um, we're used to thinking that strong Christians are the ones with lots of rules. They avoid a lot of things. And weak Christians, well, they just don't have a lot of convictions. They need to grow a little bit until they get longer rules because that's what you're supposed to have, a long set of rules. And then you're a strong, mature believer. It's actually the opposite. A Christian with a weak conscience believes that they have to follow many rules rules about what to eat and what to drink and what to wear. Um, They're weak in the sense that it doesn't take much poking to make them feel guilty. Strong Christians, strong conscience Christians, on the other hand, have less convictions about these secondary issues. Part of the joy over the next several weeks as we talk about this is we're going to have to figure out what those secondary issues are. These chapters are here to help us, strong and weak, to love one another. That's the point of this whole passage. Love one another. Paul's chief concern, and this surprises me, I confess this surprises me, why didn't Paul say, hey, you weak Christians, let me tell you the truth. You should just grow a little bit. You need to know some stuff and grow, and then you won't be weak anymore. That's not what he does at all. Instead, what he says is, He wants the strong and the weak to both love each other, to welcome each other and not judge one another. Be careful, strong Christian, that you don't wound your weak brother or sister. Verse 12 talks about a wounded conscience. Don't judge, don't wound. We're going to figure out what that is like or what that looks like in the next few weeks. So your conscience, this good gift from God, is not perfect. It can be damaged in all sorts of ways. In fact, you have to obey it, but we also need to work at calibrating it and bringing it into conformity with Scripture. Doug Buford's a preacher. He talked to his congregation once about a practice that he had when he was in college. When he was in college and he was driving, it occurred to him, he was wise, he was in college after all, it occurred to him that it made no sense really for him to stop for a long time at red traffic lights uh, if there was no traffic around. So he began to develop this habit of coming up to the red light and stopping, looking, and if there was no one there, he'd just keep going. He said something strange happened to me as time went on. My stops became shorter and shorter, and eventually I no longer stopped at all. When I was coming up to the intersection, well in advance, you'd look, are there any cars coming? Nope, off we go. He said something changed that one day, uh... and he's never run a red light since. Here's what happened. So he was coming uh, up to a red light. He saw the red light. He was checking out the landscaping, checking out the roads to see if anybody else was, not the landscaping. He wasn't looking at the flowers. He was looking at the the roads to see if anybody was coming, and uh, uh, there was a car coming, and it made him uh, uh, stop. He probably could have gone through the intersection before he saw the car, but this particular car had lights on the top of it. He saw a police car coming and uh, he slammed on the brakes and stopped. He said, the problem was, when I saw the car, my foot struggled to know where to go, which pedal to hit. Do I, do I really hit the brake or do I hit the... He had so habituated himself to ignore the warning sign that his foot didn't make a wise choice. Be careful. Be careful. Your conscience is broken. It needs to be cleansed and rescued by God. Your conscience is fragile. So treat it carefully. Let's pray, shall we? (coughs) Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for the warnings that you give us in the Bible about evil consciences or corrupted consciences, seared consciences. Lord, I I imagine if if we are honest before you, there are parts of us, parts in us, where we see evidence of evil, corruption, searing. 
We recognize it in, in, in ourselves. Even, even those of us who have followed the way that Jesus made to draw near to you, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, we see in us parts of our conscience that are broken. So we're thankful to you for warning us about this. And our hope and prayer is that you would change us and that you'd calibrate our consciences so that they would be in tune with your word. Lord, even as we progress in these next few weeks and we start to talk about more controversial things that that followers of Jesus disagree about, Lord, there will be areas in which some of us are weak and some of us will be strong in our conscience. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to grow in our love for one another. Warn us from what's ruinous. Draw us together in love around the good news of the Lord Jesus. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'd like to just remind you this morning, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you've never turned and trusted in him, the Bible calls us to you, to, calls you to turn and trust in him, to believe in his name, Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again for us, opening this new way so that we could draw near to God. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But God's gift to us through Jesus is eternal life. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in him, I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. Pastor Scott was up here a minute ago, uh, a few minutes ago. He'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are accountable to God and there's forgiveness and rescue in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for that new way that has been prepared by our great Savior. It's in his name that we pray these things, saying, Amen.